0: From the book of Second Samuel, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, good morning. We are uh, continuing our series in the life of David, and I hope you've been finding it as interesting as I have. Um, I've heard a lot of people have been canceling their Netflix subscriptions and uh, Amazon Prime and all these other things because… When there's so much meat in Scripture, what do you need those for? Um, but but the reality is, there's a lot of fascinating things that are happening, and so I'm going to you know between last week we had David and Bathsheba, you all remember that. Uh, the last two weeks, Father uh, Rodriguez spoke on those, and now as we enter into our text for this week, we have a bit of a time jump, right? Did you notice that? All of a sudden, David's in this you know, civil war against his own son, and you might be wondering, well, how in the world did this happen? Well, I'm going to catch us up real quick. Um, You might remember after last week that after David's acts of, and let's count them, coveting, adultery, murder, and lying to cover it up, up, which is about half of the Ten Commandments, right? Just just totally bombed. Um, He was called out by the prophet Nathan, and he repented. And God said, you know, I'm going to have mercy on you, and I'm going to spare your life. But there's going to be a series of consequences, and so there was a series of prophesied consequences as to what was going to happen. You remember these? There was three of them. First, the sword will never depart from David's house. It's going to be violence throughout his house. Second, evil would be raised up against David from his own house a little more specific. Third, even more specific, David's wives would be taken from him, and there would be a very public display of uh, relations. We'll put it that way. Those were the three prophecies against David. And again, these are things, if you're David, you, that's not what you want to hear, right? Like, give me, can, you lighten it, can you lighten it up a little bit? That seems pretty harsh. So, what came of those prophecies? What happened? Well, Catching us up today, David's own son, Absalom, murdered his older half-brother Amnon, murdered his own brother, fratricide. Absalom incited a rebellion, which drove David from the city. Evil from within his own house, right? And here's the third one. Absalom actually had taken David's wives and um, had relations with them on the roof in the sight of all Israel." All three. One, two, three, fulfilled. And now what our text brings us to, our lectionary brings us to today, is we're at this, the end of this rebellion that Absalom started. And, you know, honestly, when you look at David's lament in this text, it's a heartbreaking and it's a devastating moment. You know, it's one of those moments, and and let me know if you've been there, where everything around you seems to have fallen apart and there's a pause and you're kind of looking around at the mess that was your life and you're saying how in the world did i end up here and you start kind of tracing it back you know like what was my role in this what what was done to me by somebody else um, where was god in this in this whole mess that i've created it's really sad it's it's a really actually devastating moment for david and so What I want us to do this morning as we look at this text is we're going to kind of trace these lines of culpability, trace how we got to this place, and I want to look specifically at two key characteristics that come out here that are all throughout Scripture. We're going to do a deep dive into a sense of justice, and we're also going to talk about mercy, because one of these characters in the story really emphasizes mercy to a fault, and one justice to a fault. So, three points for today as we look at this text. Point number one, the flawed mercy of David. Point number two, the flawed justice of Joab. And point number three, the perfect gospel of Jesus. All right, let's dive in. Point number one, the flawed mercy of David. There's a few things that you should know about David. When his oldest son, Amnon, the one who was murdered, forced himself on his own sister, guess what David did? Nothing. When Absalom, the one we're talking about, when he murdered his older brother, Amnon, and fled the city, guess what David did to him? Nothing. And then you have Absalom, when he comes back into the city after all of this is settled, Absalom stands at the city gate and publicly undermines his father, saying, if only I were the judge of the land, I would do things right. And guess what David does to him then, finally? Nothing. David remains incredibly passive to his sons this entire time. Now, this is what the Septuagint translation of the Bible says. Why why in the world did David not step up and answer this and discipline his own children and set them in line and set boundaries and punish them and administer justice? What was he doing? Well, this is what it says it says, It was for the love of his sons that David did not dispense justice. But let me ask you, is that loving? Is that loving? To turn a blind eye to your children's faults, to overlook their grievous errors, is that a loving thing to do? To refuse to set boundaries, right? To refuse to provide clarity or discipline or standard of justice by which one can be measured is actually cruel in the long run. And you know this, right? We know this. And we've seen it play out. Um, There was a movement, and you might be familiar with this, there was a movement in the 1970s Uh, And it ended up picking up steam and kind of taking over our whole culture. And it it followed the release of a book, and it was called The Psychology of Self-Esteem. And it was a book that was written by Nathaniel Brandon. Are you all familiar with with Ayn Rand a little bit, maybe? Basically, he took her ideas and he said, you know, I've noticed that everybody who's successful in life is really confident. They're really confident. They're sure of themselves, and they're successful. So what we should do for our kids is instill in them a very high sense of confidence and self-esteem, and then they will be successful. Yeah, you know, some of your parents are like, yeah, sure. Um, and so, so what we found out, you know, this idea actually took off and it's affected our whole culture. People like to do barstool rants about um, participation awards. You ever hear somebody, yeah, right? Guess where that came from? Um, people like to blame my generation for it. You guys gave it to us, so leave us alone. Um, But the reality is that this whole idea affected all the policies, all the the, um, parenting techniques uh, for for decades. But what we found, surprise, surprise, after 40 years of research, is that higher self-esteem, and we were successful in giving kids self-esteem, right? Higher self-esteem does not improve academic or job performance. It does not improve leadership skills. It does not improve healthy habits, nor does it prevent substance abuse. Guess what it does do? Kids raised in the last 40 years are more self-centered and disrespectful and anxious and depressed than ever before. Who could have seen that coming? But you know, let me ask you, who does it serve? Who does it serve? When people have an inflated sense of self that is not commensurate with their abilities, who does that serve? Not them, right? Because if you refuse to exercise authority for the correction and discipline of the people under your care, somebody else will. Someone else who does not care about them nearly as much as you do. Someone who will dispense the full weight of justice without any mercy. In Absalom's case, it was Joab with three javelins to the heart. And we all know this, right? I see a lot of head shaking. Now granted, this is an extreme example, but the reality is the world will teach people under your care what you don't. And that's not just kids, right? That's nieces, nephews, even employees. The world will teach them what you don't but it may not be as gentle in handling them. And so you might wonder, right, well, we're Christians. How does a Christian take care of people that are under their care? What about mercy? Aren't we to extend mercy? Isn't David just showing mercy to his sons by refusing to act? Well, here's the thing that people often forget about mercy. For an act to be merciful and I want you to stick with me on this, for an act to be merciful, it requires a standard of justice. Without that standard, mercy ceases to exist and instead becomes license. And here's what I mean. Let me break this down for you. My kids are really into Hot Wheels cars right now. Asher actually just had his birthday party yesterday. Um, He is now three, which he does with the most extended fingers. You can possibly I can't even do it as wide as he does. Um, But, you know, people ask him, what does he want? Well, he loves Hot Wheels cars, right? That's most kids. Um, So let's say, for example, that in my house there's a rule that if the kids clean the whole house by themselves, that I will take them to Target to pick out a Hot Wheels car. Cheap labor, right? Those things are a buck. It's a great rule. Um, But say one Saturday... They work really hard, and like they work really hard, but the timer goes off, you know, they're out of time, they don't finish. But I saw all their effort, I saw them work, I said, you know what, I'm just going to take you this time anyway. Y'all following so far? So let me ask you this. Is that mercy, or is that license? Well, it depends. Because if next week I keep the rule in place, that would have been a one-time act of mercy. Y'all follow how this works? Standard, one-time deviation. But if I destroy the rule, if I destroy the standard of justice after that, if I abolish it, well, now it's become licensed for my boys not to do what's required of them, right? And we, we have now transformed our little family system from one of earning and appreciation to one of entitlement and ingratitude. One rule shift. You know… Mercy mercy requires justice, just as exceptions require a rule. And all mercy is no mercy at all. And it's interesting, that's how God works with us. This is off the cuff, so I can't remember what book it is, I think it's Hebrews that said that God disciplines those He loves, and this is how God works with us to form and stay with us and transform us and be engaged and involved in our lives. You know, it was St. Thomas Aquinas who once said that mercy without justice is the mother of dissolution, that is immorality. That's the mother of immorality when you have mercy without justice. Because all of us are born believing that this world is ours for the taking, and without appropriate boundaries and discipline and moral constraints and even external voices of opposition that we should not cancel. Uh, we will take whatever we can, and we will resent bitterly whatever we are deprived of. I mean, culturally, that's what concerns me most about silencing opposing voices on either side or constructing our own echo chambers, right? And we seek only, and when we seek only those people who are like-minded and affirm whatever we think, we seek all kindness, all affirmation, but without opposition. That's not good for our souls, Mercy without justice is the mother of dissolution, is what St. Thomas Aquinas said. But he also said this, but justice without mercy is cruelty. Which brings us to our second point, the flawed justice of Joab. Joab is the one, his military commander that has been with David from the very beginning, and it's Joab's spear thrusts that take Absalom out and then his armor's bearers descend on him and pull him to pieces. well. There's something before I get to Joab that you should know about Absalom, the son of David, the one that led the rebellion. He had it coming. Frankly, he had it coming. You see, Absalom took matters into his own hands to murder his brother. He didn't wait for somebody else to dispense justice. What's the penalty for that? Death. Um, Absalom… When David refused to actually meet with him, Absalom, like a spoiled child, burned his neighbor's field to get his father's attention. And at the start of the rebellion, as I said before, he would stand at the city gates and he would publicly undermine his father. What is supremely ironic about Absalom is he's breaking every rule in the book, and he's calling for justice. Is this familiar to anybody? breaking every rule in the book, but he's the loudest voice proclaiming justice. And he says, you know, again, he rebels against his father, penalty, death. He sleeps with his father's wives, Leviticus, penalty, guess. death, right, by stoning. Um, he tries to kill the Lord's anointed. He tries to kill David. What's the penalty for that, do you think? It's death. He had it coming. You know, so again, when he's standing at the city gates and he's calling for justice, it's hard not to be a little bit confused because it's like, Absalom, you realize what this would mean if you call for justice, right? But he's calling for justice for everybody else, right? But not for him. Justice for everyone else, but not for me. Don't give me what I deserve. Give me what I want and give everyone else what they deserve. Well, that's all of us, by the way. We're all Absalom here you know, I see a car driving too fast or obnoxiously, and I'm so petty. I quite literally pray for a police officer to show up right then so I can watch justice happen. You know, and it's never, it's never when you want it, right? You're just like, somebody's riding your tail and cuts around, and you're just like, I do. Like, Lord, if it be your will, send a police officer right now. Let's get that. That's all of us, right? But in that very, you know, like, but not that I ever speed, so let's do hypotheticals. If I were to speed and I see the lights flashing, am I praying for justice or mercy? What do you think? Right? Lord, let me get off. I never get off, by the way, but maybe one time. You can pray for that. Um, but that's how fickle all of us are, isn't it? That's how fickle our hearts are. We define justice as getting whatever we want and everyone else getting whatever they deserve. And Absalom wanted the throne, but he didn't deserve it. It wasn't his by rights. He did nothing to earn it. What he had earned was death. And you know what? Joab was more than happy to deliver, wasn't he? But Joab showed no consideration for who Absalom was, no leniency, no mercy, just three quick javelins to the heart. Again, justice without mercy is cruelty. And Let me explain this a little bit. Justice does not require redemption. It does not require forgiveness. It does not require absolution. All it requires is punishment. That's it. Justice is not obligated to consider all of the faults of David that led to who Absalom was, right? It's not obligated to consider the heartbreak that his death would cause David. It was not obligated to consider any future effects other than the fact that justice is served. That's it. You know, and this is honestly what concerns me a little bit about our cultural conversations around justice, because we are as Christians to seek justice, right? That's, that's very clear in Scripture. But in a lot of the cultural conversations we're having around this idea of justice at least the loudest voices that I'm hearing in those conversations, don't speak about forgiveness, and they don't speak about absolution, and they don't speak about mercy. In fact, if they use the term mercy at all, it's not for the oppressors, but for the oppressed. That concerns me. It concerns me. Justice without mercy is cruelty. And you know, like Absalom, we all call for justice, but we ought to be very careful about our own standing what does God say about the wages of sin? What is our justice? It's death. That's what you and I believe. Wages of sin is death. And if we say, no, thank you, God, for mercy. Give me your perfect justice in this moment. Well, that's what we get. Which brings us to our third and final point, the gospel of Jesus. So David was all mercy. Joab was all justice. And both caused a lot of damage. You know, when the dust settles at the end of this rebellion, Absalom was dead. The full weight of justice had been dispensed. And David wept and he grieved and he cried out for the loss of his son, which, by the way, is exactly what you or I would have done. Granted, the son was unrepentant, he was a murderer, he was in full rebellion against his father, but he was his son nonetheless. You know, if we can rightly judge David for too much mercy and leniency earlier, I think it would be hypocritical for us to judge him in this moment of heartbreak. For what parent would not grieve the finality of this judgment? You know, it's fascinating. There's this moment in the New Testament that directly aligns with this. Jesus in Matthew 23, he's been preaching and preaching and preaching and loving and caring for people. And he's standing outside overlooking Jerusalem. And he looks over and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often would I have gathered you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks, yet you were not willing? Behold, your city is left to you desolate. That's the heart of God for his people. That's the heart that David had for his son. That's why scripture says, right, that David was a man after God's own heart. The problem with David is that he didn't understand the concept of justice and mercy, and how they intertwine, and how they meet, and how God makes this perfect union. You know, unlike David, God knows that to maintain justice, an act of mercy has to be paid for. If my sons don't finish cleaning the house, who has to do it? Somebody does, right? An act of mercy has to be paid for by someone. There is an accounting for forgiveness, a debt that is incurred, and because if you don't pay for your sins, someone has to. God understood that. Unlike Joab, God also loves us. He has a Father's heart for us. That's why the Bible says that God disciplines those He loves. It's so that we don't fall away and face final judgment. It's also why God in His mercy pays the debt that we could not by Jesus' death on the cross. You know, the cross, the gospel that we love, the gospel that brings us all together is this perfect wedding of justice and mercy, The only way that God can remain who He is as a just God and yet show mercy to those whom He loves. You know, and like David, we're all heirs of the promise of God. We're all children of God. And we're not always preserved from the consequences of our sins, are we? We're just not. That's not the way the world is set up. But for those who are in Christ, we, like David, are preserved even through them to eternal life because of the work that God has done for us. The perfect meeting of justice and mercy. And I pray for us, you know, there are always going to be those in this room who are more aligned with mercy and more aligned with justice. And as Christians, if we're going to demonstrate the full heart of God, we have got to get in touch with that part of ourselves that Jesus demonstrates for us to bring this love and this message out into the world in a way that brings hope and healing and unity with God. Let us pray. Holy Father, I thank you for the heart that you have for us, for the fact that you would not leave us to ourselves and our rebellion, that you would not allow us to get to the fullness of self-destruction, but that you in your mercy sent Jesus Christ for us. I pray that you would grant us the strength and courage to preserve your standard of justice, to speak the truth to those who need to hear it, but to do so in a way that is loving and merciful and desires redemption and restoration and unity. I pray that you would also give us the courage to pay for the mercy that we would be willing to show others, to take that forgiveness on ourselves, and ultimately to point to your glory in your son Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.